Let's open God's Word this morning to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, we will read the first 21 verses. This is God's promise to David to give to him a son who would establish an everlasting kingdom. He's promising to David that the Messiah will be born of his line, which promise is fulfilled in our King Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel 7, it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord. Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not, why build ye not me an house of cedar? Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcoat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more, neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with stripes and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever, according to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Then went David in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that Thou hast brought me hitherto? And this was yet a small thing in Thy sight, O Lord God, but Thou hast spoken also of Thy servant's house for a great while to come. And is this the manner of men, O Lord God? And what can David say more unto thee? For thou, Lord God, knowest thy servant. 
For Thy Word's sake and according to Thine own heart, hast Thou done all these great things to make Thy servant know them. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 12. We come to this Lord's Day for the third time this Sabbath morning. Lord's Day 12. Why is He called Christ that is anointed? Because He is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, and to be our only High Priest who by the one sacrifice of His body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us, and also to be our eternal King who governs us by His Word and Spirit and who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us. But why art thou called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus am partaker of His anointing, that so I may confess His name, and present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him, and also that with a free and good conscience I may fight against sin and Satan in this life, and afterwards reign with Him eternally over all creatures." On the pages of sacred Scripture, we find that our Mediator is given different names. And among those names is the name Christ. That name that signifies He is God's Anointed One. That is, God's office bearer who has been ordained and qualified to perform that work of saving His people. That's what the name Christ reveals to us. And it reveals still further that He is as our mediator, our prophet, our priest, and our king. That is, He is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament types and shadows. Those figures that pointed ahead to our Savior. He's all three of those offices in one. That, in a nutshell, is what Lord's Day 12 teaches us about our Savior. And in considering this Lord's Day, we have decided to break it up into multiple sermons and have at least one sermon on each of those different aspects of Christ's office. We've already considered Christ's priestly work that He performs on His behalf, as well as considering how we are made partakers of His anointing and thus are also priests who are to present ourselves as living sacrifices. This morning, we come to the office of King. And we want to see how Jesus Christ is our King. And look at the work that He performs in that office, but then also see how, as those who are partakers of His anointing, we too are made kings, and thus have the calling to fight and who will one day also have the privilege of ruling over the new heavens and the new earth. So this morning we consider Christ our eternal King. First, this morning we're going to look at His kingly office. Second, we'll look at His kingly work. And then third, our kingly calling. Christ our eternal King. His kingly office, His kingly work, and our kingly calling. 
the clear testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is King. This was prophesied of Him already in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, a prophecy was spoken, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government, that is the the ruling, shall be upon His shoulders, and His name shall be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and now notice, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom. This verse is speaking of a a prince, a ruler, who's going to sit upon the throne of King David. It's teaching us that the Messiah will be a king. And this is what was revealed about our Savior when the angels came to announce His birth. For example, in Luke 1, verses 32 and following, we hear the angels saying, the Lord God shall give unto Him, that is to Mary's Son, the throne of His father David. And He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and His kingdom, and of His kingdom, there shall be no end. The angels indicating that this son that's about to be born to Joseph and Mary is the, the fulfillment of that promise that we read in 2 Samuel 7 that God would give to David a son who would establish an everlasting kingdom. It's teaching us Jesus Christ is King. And Christ Himself would affirm this. During His trial before Pontius Pilate, Jesus said during that trial, My kingdom is not of this world. If My kingdom were of this world, then would My servants fight. He speaks of His kingdom. He's implying, He's indicating He's a king. And Pilate understood that. That's why Pilate asks Him in the very next verse, Art thou a king then? To which Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I'm a king. He's saying, yes, I am a king. So the clear testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ is king. That is, this is a part of His office as our mediator. And by putting it that way, that this is saying this is a part of His office as mediator, we are distinguishing this idea of Him being King from the fact that He is King as God. For the reality is that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is King of kings and Lord of lords. As the Creator, He is the ruler over everything. And because Jesus Christ is the Son of God in human flesh, because He partakes of the divine essence, He therefore also shares in that divine rule, that divine Kingship. And this aspect of Christ's kingship is what Reformed theologians have called His essential kingship or His essential rule because He is king by virtue of His essence as God. But in the sermon this morning, we're not referring to His essential rule, but we're referring to what we call in Reformed theology His mediatorial rule, His personal rule rule or his economic rule that is the fact that he's been given this office as king from God the most high as a part of his work as mediator it's the office that's been given to 
The man Jesus Christ. That's what's in view this morning when we speak of Jesus Christ as our King. So we've established He's King, but that raises the question, what does this office all entail? What is the work of a king? What is a king supposed to do? And now if we were in catechism this morning, and I asked that question, what does a king do? I would expect every single first and third through third grader to raise their hands. We're not in catechism, so keep your hands down. But you first and third graders know the answer to that question, right? What do kings do? They fight and they rule. And the first through third graders know that because in Beginner's Catechism, we've been going through the history of the kings beginning at Saul. We're up to Ahab. And what we see again and again and again is that kings fight. We draw a sword on the board. And kings rule. We draw a crown on the board. Because those are the two things that belong to the office of a king. First of all, kings fight. That's what we see when we look at the kings of the Old Testament, when we want to understand this office of Jesus Christ, we need to look at it in light of what's revealed about Jesus Christ through those Old Testament types and shadows. And the first thing we see is that kings fight. For was this not the very first thing that King Saul did after his anointing? In 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul is anointed. He's put into office. He's ordained qualified to be a king. And in 1 Samuel 11, we read of that wicked king Nahash of the Ammonites coming to the people of Jabesh-Gilead saying, I'm going to pluck out your right eyes. And Saul, as king, rallies God's people and comes and fights off Nahash and drives away the Ammonites. Kings fight. And we see this in many examples. We see this in the example of King Asa when the Ethiopians came upon the children of Israel with an army that numbered a million strong. As king, Asa went out and in the strength of the Lord defeated them. Kings fight. And while we could give many examples, the, the clearest example of all is King David. For was not his first public act also one of doing battle? It was. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed into office. In 1 Samuel 17, the very next chapter, he goes out and he does battle against Goliath. And in the strength of his anointing, he defeats that giant with the most unlikely of instruments. Not a sword. Not a spear. But a shepherd's sling. And that was merely the beginning. David's whole rule was characterized by warfare. He was a mighty warrior. So that said about David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 9 God says, And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thy enemies out of thy sight. And indeed, in the very next chapter, in 2 Samuel 8, the heading in my Bible just calls that chapter David's conquests because it's him defeating one enemy nation after another enemy nation. David was 
as king fought. And that's why in catechism, when we used three words to describe David, we said first and foremost, he was a warrior. Yes, he's a worshiper and a sinner, but first and foremost, he was a warrior because kings fight. Now, it's important that we understand that they do so as a servant of the people on behalf of the people. With at least the good kings in the Old Testament, when they go out to battle, it's not because they have a pension for fighting. It's not because they're seeking their own glory, their own greatness, but they're going out on behalf of the people to defend the people. If King Saul does not drive away Nahash and the Ammonites, everyone in Jabesh-Gilead is going to lose an eye. If David does not defeat Goliath, well then, the people of Israel are going to be once again subjected to the reign of the Philistines. Be their servants once again. Kings fight on behalf of the people to defend the people for the good of the people. So what do kings do? What belongs to the office of a king? Well, first of all, they fight. Second, they rule. They govern. They reign. And that too is what we see when we look at the Old Testament kings. We see this with the godly examples of those kings who brought reform to the land. Men like Asa and Hezekiah and Josiah who as a part of their rule, threw out all the idols. They they cleaned house from a spiritual point of view. That was a part of them governing the people. We see this in a king such as Jehoshaphat who sent out the Levites to instruct the people in God's law. He he was teaching them the, the royal law of the land. God's own law for the people. He was ruling. We have the clearest example of one who was ruling, governing in Solomon. David's our fighter. Solomon especially is our ruler. The one who governed the people. And that as king, he exercised just judgment. When he is anointed and then installed into office, we read of him deposing the priest Abiathar for trying to help Adonijah in his sinful attempt to claim the crown. And what is more, Solomon has Joab executed for all the innocent blood that that man had shed. He has Shimei executed for his rebellion against the clear command of the king. He's exercising justice. He's ruling as king. And then after he's given that spirit of wisdom, what do we read him doing? We read him making a wise decision, a wise ruling between two women who are fighting over the same child. And what is more, as ruler, he, he took the riches of the kingdom and he, he bestowed them upon the, the citizens of that kingdom. For Solomon's kingship, his rule was characterized by an unprecedented peace and prosperity. There was prosperity. There was So much gold that silver was accounted for nothing. The utensils that Solomon used to eat with were made of gold. There was prosperity. And there was also peace. The absence of war. The absence of fighting. So that Solomon could say in 1 Kings 5, verse 4, but now hath the Lord 
my God given me rest on every side so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. That is, anything evil occurring. No adversaries, neither evil occurrent. And the thing is that this was not just something Solomon enjoyed, but as a part of his rule, he saw to it that the people enjoyed those same blessings. And thus we see the same thing. Just as a king fights on behalf of the people for their good, so too a good godly king is one who rules not for his own glory, not for his own prosperity and riches, but he's invested in the people. He cares about the people. This is why in the Old Testament we see again and again the idea that the kings were to be shepherds of the people. For example, in Psalm 78, verses 70 and 71, we read that God chose David, also his servant, and took David from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, great with young. He brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And when it says he brought him to feed his people, the idea is he brought them to him to shepherd the people. So that when David is made king, it's not as though he stops being a shepherd altogether, but instead he's, shep- he's doing a different kind of shepherding. Instead of shepherding the, the sheep of his father's flock, he's now shepherding the sheep of God's kingdom. And as a shepherd, he was to care for the people. This is what kings are to do. They were to Make just judgments for the, the good of the people. Setting before them God's law. They were to make wise decisions that serve the, the welfare of the people. And they were to take the riches, the blessings of the kingdom, and not just hoard them to themselves, but give them to the people. That's the office of a king. A king fights and a king rules. And oh, how we need such a king. For we need someone to fight on our behalf. For we too have enemies, and our enemies are not the nations surrounding the United States of America. It's not some physical enemy or particular person in mind, but our enemies are the devil, the world, our own sinful flesh, those spiritual enemies who never cease to assault us. And before our enemies, we are like sheep. Helpless, defenseless, vulnerable. We need someone to fight on our behalf to protect us. And what is more, we need someone to rule on our behalf to govern us. Because like sheep, we are foolish by nature. Like sheep, we are easily led astray and thus we need one to lead us and direct us as a shepherd. To see to it that our needs are met. We need a king. And not one of the kings that we have mentioned thus far will do for us. Not one king from the Old Testament Scriptures, whether a king of Israel or Judah, 
can be the king that we need. Because though there were some godly kings who served the good of the people in the Old Testament, who were outstanding types, nevertheless, every one of them falls short. Every one of them has a a failure as king so that though David was a mighty warrior and a great worshiper, he was also a sinner. And though King Solomon was given wisdom like no one else before him, yet later on in his life we see that for him too there was foolishness bound up in his heart. Unless it's not David, it's not Solomon who are the kings that we need. We need someone better. And the good news of the Gospel is that God has given us the perfect King. For He has given us Jesus Christ as our King. The One who is the fulfillment of those Old Testament types. The One in whom all of the strengths of those Old Testament types find their completion, their fullness, so that if we want to understand what it means that Jesus Christ is King, we have to take the strengths of David, the strengths of Solomon, and put them two together. And only then do we begin to understand what it means that Jesus Christ is our King. And so as a people this morning, we have cause for rejoicing knowing that God has provided for us the King that we need. And we rejoice, especially in His work on our behalf. So we've considered the kingly office, seeing that Jesus Christ is our King. But now we want to see how Christ Himself carries out the work of the King, and especially those two things that we see in the Old Testament types. For Jesus Christ does fight and rule. And that's the teaching of the Catechism in Lord's Day 12, question and answer 31. Why is He called Christ that is anointed? Because He is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost. And then it explains how He's our chief prophet and teacher and then our only high priest. And then toward the end it says, and also our eternal King who governs us by His Word and Spirit. That is, He rules us. He reigns over us. And who defends and preserves us in that salvation. That is, He he fights on our behalf. And so what we see is that the, the catechism is a faithful summary of what Scripture teaches. If we look at the Old Testament ask what do kings do, they fight in the rule and the catechism picks up on that so that when it explains the work of Jesus Christ as King, it sets before us those two things. It starts with the fact that He rules us. catechism says who governs us by His Word and Spirit. It's talking about His rule of grace over His people. And this work of ruling us begins by reclaiming us from the enemy by establishing His rule in our hearts because apart from His work of grace, we were at enmity with our God. We were His rebellious enemies. We had allied ourselves to the devil in Adam and it was that sinful nature that ruled in our hearts so that everything we did was done in the service of sin. But praise be to God that our 
king came and invaded our hearts. He came in might to overthrow the kingship of sin and Satan in our hearts. He he took that sinful nature, that old man of sin, and He dethroned him. He toppled him down even as we read in Romans 6, verse 7. Our old man is crucified with Him that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth, henceforth we should not serve sin. He's, he's conquered our spiritual enemies within our heart. And in doing so, we see the truthfulness of Colossians 1, verse 16, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. We were a part of that kingdom of darkness, but now He's brought us into the His own kingdom, the kingdom of light. He's set up His rule, His reign in our hearts, and that He's sent the Spirit to come and live and to dwell within us. All that is to say that He's established His rule in our hearts by overthrowing the enemy. But He doesn't merely start that work. He continues that work. He continues to rule us and govern us. And the Catechism says that He governs us by His Word and Spirit. He governs us by His Word. That is, He gives to us the sacred Scriptures and sets them before us as the the royal law, the rule of the kingdom. This is how you are to serve Me. But more than merely giving us His Word, He gives us His Spirit. And He rules us in such a way that by His Spirit, He makes us willing and obedient servants of the King. We say that in light of the language in Psalm 110, verse 3, which says about Christ the King, Thy people shall be willing in the day of Thy power. That is, the Spirit works in us the the willing and the doing of His Word. He inclines our hearts and He affects us in such a way that we make a, a small beginning in serving our King. That's a part of His rule over us as King. But more than that, He, he also cares for us. He, he blesses us. He is our Shepherd King. He is the One who rules us justly by His loyal, royal law. He's the One who leads us and guides us in His perfect wisdom as the one who's not just been given wisdom, but who is wisdom in His very being and in His very essence. And what is more, He takes the riches of the kingdom. And rather than hoarding them to Himself, He gives. For He takes all those riches that He earned by His priestly work in dying on the cross for our sins and earning salvation. As King, He now showers them upon the citizens of His kingdom so that we are rich from a spiritual point of view, so that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Christ rules. He reigns on our behalf. And thus, what a privilege it is to belong to His kingdom. Perhaps when we read about David and all of his conquests or Solomon and all the riches, there's a part of us that almost wishes we could go back just to see it. 
What was it like to be a part of that kingdom? Of the kingdom of Israel in its, in its heyday before the split? But congregation, we need not be envious of the saints of old who lived during that time of prosperity. Because we're citizens of Christ's spiritual kingdom. And we have a King far more glorious, far more splendid than any of the Old Testament types. Yea, more glorious than all the Old Testament types combined together as our King, Jesus Christ, rules over us. But He does more than rule. He also fights for us. That's what the Catechism teaches us. It says, after stating that He governs us by His Word and Spirit, He adds, secondly, that He defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation He has purchased for us. Our King fights on our behalf. But now as we consider that fighting, it's important to note that from one point of view, the fighting is finished. But from another point of view, it's ongoing. It continues. From one point of view, the fighting is finished. Because Jesus Christ has won the victory by His death and resurrection. For you see, as our King, He did not just stay in His tower up in heaven expecting us to do the work, but He Himself came down. He went forth into battle as the captain of our salvation. And for Him, His fighting likewise began in earnest just after He's anointed. For immediately after He's anointed, He is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And we can understand that in terms of spiritual warfare. The devil seeking to overthrow this King who's come down into this world, but Jesus Christ prevailed. He won the victory there. But that was not the main victory, was it? The main victory took place on that hill called Calvary where Jesus Christ dealt the death blow to our enemy with the most unlikely instrument. Not a sword. Not a spear. Not even a shepherd's sling. But the cross that accursed tree. For there, Jesus Christ paid the debt for our sins. Not that He paid the debt to our enemies. That's a wrong understanding of what happens at the cross. The debt was paid to our God. He's the offended one. But in paying that debt, in accomplishing our salvation, Jesus Christ was nevertheless dealing the death blow to our enemy. And He did that as our King. Because is that not what was written over His head? 
even as He hung there on the cross. Pilate did not realize that of a truth, it was our King who was nailed to that cross. And as our King, He was accomplishing our salvation. He won the victory. And it's on the basis of that saving work of Jesus Christ that we find in Scripture the verses that speak of Him as the victor over sin and our enemies. For example, in Colossians 2, verse 15, it says about Christ and having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Same thing in Hebrews 2, verse 14, that through death He might destroy Him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus Christ has won the victory. And again, He didn't just do this for Himself, but He did it on behalf of the people. So that the good news of the Gospel is that this is our victory. Our salvation is not left up to us in our battle against sin and temptation, but our salvation is secure because of the, the conquering, victorious work of our King Jesus Christ. And all that is to say from a certain point of view, the fighting is finished. The war has been won in principle. But though that's true, Yet there is another sense in which the battle continues. The fighting is ongoing. And that's true because though our Savior broke the power of our enemies, He did not annihilate them. He did not exterminate them. They still exist. And in their death throes, as it were, they continue to lash out against Christ's kingdom and His people. So that, the, so that although the war has been won in principle, nevertheless, there are still ongoing battles. Though the victory is secure, nevertheless, there are still skirmishes taking place. There's an ongoing battle. But even then, it's not that Christ won the initial victory. Now it's all up to you. But Christ continues to fight as King. He defends us and preserves us. And that's really the focus of the catechism. The catechism doesn't so much talk about His victory at the cross, but His ongoing work of defending us and preserving us in the enjoyment of that salvation He purchased for us. That is, as our King, He will not allow our spiritual enemies to prevail against us. He will never allow the enemies to take us out of His kingdom of light and draw us back into the kingdom of darkness. And though at times we may be ensnared in some sin, though at times it may seem the, the enemy has gained the upper hand, nevertheless, our confidence is that our King will come and rescue us and deliver us from the clutches, the snares of the enemy. That's His work as King. And we have the confidence that He's able to defend us and preserve us. Because He rules not only over us, 
but He rules also over our enemies. You see, His kingship is not confined to that spiritual reign over His people. He does reign us and rule over us in a unique and special way. What we would call the the rule of His grace. It's a gracious rule when it comes to His people, but that's not the whole of it because He's been given all power and authority. He's King of kings and Lord of lords regardless of whether we acknowledge Him as King or refuse to acknowledge Him as King. That is, He is in control of our spiritual enemies. And whereas He rules us by His grace, He rules them by His power even as we sang about when singing a versification of Psalm 2. And because our spiritual enemies are under His dominion, under His control, that means we do not have to worry about them somehow overthrowing Him as King. That's impossible. He will certainly defend and preserve His people. That's our confidence. And so this morning we look to Christ, our eternal King. We look to Him to rule over us. And we look to Him to fight on our behalf. But even as we look to Christ our King, we also must remember that as those who are partakers of His anointing, He makes us to be kings. And that's where question and answer 32 of the Catechism comes in. But why art thou called a Christian? Because I'm a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of His anointing. And then it says that I may confess His name. There's the prophetic work. And then present myself a living sacrifice. There's our priestly work. But then it adds, and also... Notice the two elements here. With a free and good conscience, I may fight against sin and Satan in this life and afterward reign with Him eternally over all creatures. We are partakers of His anointing and therefore we are kings. And because we are kings, we therefore have the same calling to fight and to reign. First, as Christians, we are to fight. Not against physical enemies. For as we read in Ephesians 6, verse 11, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. As we said earlier, our warfare is against that threefold spiritual enemy, the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. And our fighting, our battle, fundamentally is saying no to sin and temptation. Our fighting is that we are to resist the devil as James 4 verse 7 tells us. Our fighting is that we are to walk differently than the world around us as Ephesians 4, verse 17 teaches us. 
Our fighting is that we are to mortify, to put to death that old man of sin as Colossians 3 verse 5 teaches us. That's the battle that we're called to engage in. But for the purposes of this sermon, I think it is less important to talk about the battle itself and to describe it. And more important, to remind us to look to our King Jesus Christ for strength and to trust Him in our battle. Because that's the lesson we learn when we go back to those Old Testament kings. How many times was the nation of Israel vastly outnumbered by some enemy nation? The odds were entirely against them. But then by faith, they cried out unto God, asking for help, trusting in Him, and God gave them the victory. Sometimes in a miraculous way even. But then there are those other times where there's some battle to be fought. But rather than trusting in Jehovah God, Israel puts their trust in themselves or some other nation. And though from a a physical point of view, Israel seems to have the upper hand. This seems like an easy battle. Israel nevertheless loses. It's a recurring pattern. We see that pattern when we look just at the kingship of Asa. We mentioned him a couple times in this sermon. Early on in his reign, we read how the Ethiopians came against the people of Judah with a, a vast army. But Asa and the people put their trust in God. We read of Asa crying out unto God by faith, saying, Lord, it is nothing with Thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on Thee. They trusted in God. And what do we read in the next verse? 2 Chronicles 14, verse 12, So the Lord smote the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. The Lord gave them the victory when they looked to Him for strength. But yet, later on, Asa does the exact opposite. Because later on, the king of Israel, that is the northern ten tribes, comes to fight against Asa. And this time, instead of crying out unto God, he pays a sum of money to the Syrians, asks them for help. He puts his trust in the hand of men. And what happens? Well, God sends a prophet to come and rebuke King Asa. The prophet says, because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thy hand. And then the prophet adds, herein thou hast done foolishly. Asa, you're a fool to trust in man. Because when we go to battle, we are not to trust in ourselves or in another, but we're to trust in our God. And that was part of the message that that prophet brought 
to King Asa. He says in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward Him. What a verse. It says basically, God is looking for anyone who's going to put their trust in Him so that God can show His strength in delivering us. So do we look to Him? We are engaged in battle. I trust every one of us recognizes that. But are we still trying to fight in our own strength? By my own willpower? Or am I saying the battle is the Lord's? I need my King, Jesus Christ, to defend me and to preserve me by His Spirit giving me the strength. He is my sanctification. Trust in Him. For when we trust in Him, we can go forth into battle with the same confidence that David had when he went out against Goliath. The confidence that God would surely deliver Goliath into His hand. So as kings, we are to fight. That's a part of our calling. And we are to fight trusting in our God. But we not only fight as kings, we also rule. We reign. And that's what the catechism teaches us at the very end when it adds, and afterwards reign with Him eternally over all creatures. Catechism focuses on the reign afterwards. That is, after Christ comes again in the, the life to come. But that's not to the exclusion of the fact that there is ascension, a sense in which we rule, we reign already in this life. And that's true of every single believer in that we have the calling to rule ourselves, as it were. For as the family visitation text teaches us, Titus 2, we're all called to be sober. That is to be self-controlled. That is we are to rule over those sinful passions and lusts that we find within our hearts that so easily swell up and come to expression in our lives. Live a life of self-control. Be sober. That is, rule over those sinful desires. And we do that ultimately by submitting ourselves to the rule of our King Jesus Christ. Surrendering ourselves over to Him. Looking to Him for the strength to put down those sinful desires. So all of us are called to rule over ourselves. But there's also another sense in which many of us are called to rule. And that is as servants on behalf of Jesus Christ who have been given a position of authority. For certainly Christ is the King. And He rules over every being, every creature, but yet in His rule, He has determined that He will take others and put them in positions of authority 
underneath Him. So that Christ is the King, there are those in authority, and then there are those under them. We're talking about those who are parents, those who are teachers, those who are office bearers, or whatever the position of authority may be. We are to rule. And now the key is, we are to exercise that authority as Christ did. Not for ourselves. Not thinking that everybody underneath me must serve me and it's all about me. But we're to be a servant to the people whom God has entrusted to us. To look out for them. To do everything for their good. That's ruling as Christ rules. And that's a part of the rule that's that we have already in this life. But though there is that element of ruling in this life, the focus of the catechism is rightly on our rule, our reign in the life to come. It says that afterwards we will reign with Him eternally over all creatures. And this afterward is when Christ Himself comes to reign on our behalf. For the good news of the Gospel is that Christ will indeed come again. And when He comes, He will come in all of His power, in all of His kingly glory. And He will at last put down our enemies finally and fully. They will have no power whatsoever anymore so that the battle will be over. And we can lay down our armor. And He will inaugurate the the everlasting kingdom. The kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. And what a kingdom that will be. If Solomon's kingdom was truly glorious, so that people from all over the earth were coming to see it, how much more glorious will be the kingdom of the perfect King Jesus Christ. It will be a kingdom of prosperity. For while Solomon might have used a golden fork and knife to eat his food, Scripture tells us that in the eternal kingdom, the very streets we walk on will be pure gold. Telling us of the riches, the glory, the prosperity of this kingdom. For we will be given all of the riches of salvation in all of their fullness. And a part of that is the the peace that comes. Solomon was able to say that there was no adversary or nor, nor evil occurrence and how much more so in the perfect kingdom. There's not going to be any more battles. There's never going to be even one evil occurrence, not even in the depths of my heart. There's going to be peace. That's what awaits us. That's what's coming. And so why would we ever set our hearts on the things here below? 
Why would we look to the things of this earth for our joy, for our happiness? When we know it's coming. Especially because not only will we be a part of this kingdom, citizens of this kingdom, what is more, we will rule in this kingdom. Catechism says, and afterwards reign with Him eternally over all creatures. It's drawing from Paul's confession in 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. That is, we are going to reign over the new heavens and the new earth and the creatures of that new heavens and new earth. Christ is, will continue to be the King, the Sovereign over all. We will be under Him, but nevertheless, we will reign with Him. And it's when we think upon that truth that our fervent prayer becomes, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. So that we might see You as King. And so that we might enter into that everlasting Kingdom. That's our hope. And that's our prayer. Amen. Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word and for the glorious truth that Jesus Christ is our King. Direct our spiritual eyes of faith unto Him, especially in our own battles against sin. Help us to trust in Thee in whom alone is our strength. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.